A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored as a schus for Fuish Aleima for Yisrael Yitzchak Ben Lea. And this episode is a kind of a sequel, a stands on its own. It's about Rebruvin Grzovsky, but on the other hand, it's a bit of a continuation to um, a very popular series you just had over um, Sukkot about Reb Baruch Ber Leibovitch. And of course, Reb Ruvin Grzovsky is the son-in-law of Reb Baruch Ber, Kamenitz. And since, as a result of the popularity of the series, I, I decided to uh, answer the call of a lot of the feedback that uh, that I received to somewhat continue it, but really in the really really as a story that stands on its own with Rebruvain, but in in many ways it's um, also a continuation of the story of Rebaruch Ber, as Rebruvain was his loyal son-in-law and successor at the helm of the yeshiva, and of course sponsorships are available, lectures, virtual tours. Be in touch with me about all that, and I also want to thank. Uh, loyal and dedicated and extremely knowledgeable listener of Jewish History Soundbites, Eli Neuberger, um, as usual, for his assistance with this episode. And I'll start off with a bunch of uh, letters. Uh, again, the feedback that I got from the Baruch Bear series was very, you know, a lot and very, very added a lot and uh, some corrections, some additions. So someone submitted... Uh, an additional fact about Rebaruch Ber, and here it goes. It should be noted that he would daven with great hishtabchus hanefesh and would cry many times during davening, almost like a Hasidic Rebbe. So that's uh, definitely another important fact about Rebaruch Ber. There was an important correction that a lot of people made, and I appreciate the fact that everyone uh, alerted me to this uh, fact. I had mentioned that there's a yeshiva of Kamenitz in Barra Park, and I said that uh, there was no direct connection between uh, the Kamenitz and Baruch Park and the original Yeshiva's Kamenitz of Rav Baruch Ber. And that was an incorrect statement, and several people submitted I'm just going to read one of them. 
Yeshivas Kamenitz in Brooklyn was founded by Reb Levi Kropenia, the son-in-law of Reb Ruven Grzovsky, so it's the grandson of Reb Baruch Ber, and it later merged with another yeshiva, Tyrus Emes. There is also a Kailal called Kailal Kamenitz located in the old Kamenitz building on 56th Street. So after Reb Levi Kropenia has left Woodridge, where he was in partnership with Reb Meir Stern, and uh, the the um, the yeshiva, so he founded the yeshiva in, of Kamenitz in Borough Park. The yeshiva eventually relocated to Flatbush, but officially the Kamenitz portion remained in Borough Park as a kailo. Okay, so there you have the Blavi Kropenia's connection, and that's why it was called Kamenitz. That's a very important correction. Another interesting letter I got is, here it goes, there is an interesting story when the Lubavitcher Rebbe met with Reb Baruch Ber in the presence of Reb Chaim Oizer. And he goes on to say, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he goes on to say that um, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, before he was the Rebbe, he was sent by his father-in-law, the previous, the Friyadika Rebbe, the Rayats, to consult with Reb Chaim Oizer and to have him sign some joint letter that the Torah leaders were signing together. And the Rebar Chaber was uh, meeting with Reb Chaim Meiser at the time and was very, very impressed with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, with the future Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they s- discussed learning topics. And the Rebar Chaber invited him to come and join his yeshiva in Kamenitz and guaranteed a future position in the Lithuanian Torah world. That's how impressed he was with his Torah scholarship. He said, you will become a great Torah leader, a great Rosh Hashiva if you come study by me. And the future Lubavitcher Rebbe thanked him for the offer, but said, I have my derech, I have my, uh, you know, what my calling in life, and that's with my father-in-law, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he was staying where he was. But it's a very interesting account of a meeting that took place between the future Rebbe and her Baruch Ber. Another listener um, added in about another son-in-law. Today we're going to talk about her Bruvain, of course, but the other sons-in-law of her Baruch Ber were in were very prominent as well. So there was Rabbi Yitzchak Turetz. He, he, the listener writes here, Rabbi Yitzchak Turetz ended up as a rabbi in the Bat Galim neighborhood in Haifa. And it did not work out, so he ended up in the United States in not a great state after the war. Uh, the Satmarov tried getting Rav Aaron Cutler to hire him as a Magad Shir in Lakewood, but that did not work out. So that's an interesting anecdote about Rabbi Yitzchak Turetz, which I was not aware of either. Another one about Rabbi Baruch Ber when he was still the Rosh Hashiva in Slabatka, and when he was in the early years. So this is a, another story that a listener reminded me of. When Rabbi David Karliner, Rabbi David Friedman, Rabbi David Karliner, came to Kovna for Shabbos, after Shalashudis, both yeshivas of Slabatka walked across the bridge to where Rabdavidal of Karlin was staying, he came out to the porch, and when he came out to the porch, Rabarach Ber recited the bracha of Cholak Chachmasai Liyareyev, that one recites on a great Torah sage, and the 400 yeshiva students there all said Amen. So those are a good few additions about Rabarach Ber, and here we go right in to his great son-in-law, Rabruvin Grzovsky, who's Less famous, but a very, very important uh, figure in history and Torah leader. Reb Ruvain, uh, was born in Minsk. His father, Reb Shamshin Grzovsky, was a rabbi of a Minsk neighborhood. And Reb Ruvain was um, 
It was a very unique individual, very different than most of the other students at Slobodka and other yeshiva students in general at the time. For instance, he was one of the only yeshiva students at the time who did not shave his beard. He kept his beard. And he was also a very proactive uh, in Minsk uh, about against the various isms and revolutionary ideas and ideologies swirling in the streets, capturing the hearts and the minds of the Jewish youth at the time, and especially in a great city like Minsk. And he was very active among the youth in trying to stem the tide of the, the attraction to these other new isms. Um, for a time, Ruvain, when he was still in Minsk, was the Chavrusa, of the youngest son of the Beis Halevi, from the Beis of Dave Halevi Salavechik, the founder of the Salavechik Brisk dynasty. So his youngest son, from his third marriage, he had a son, Reb Simcha Salavechik. And at that time, Reb Simcha Salavechik resided in a Minsk suburb. He had recently married the daughter of a wealthy man named Yitzchak Lifshitz. So he lived by his father-in-law. And he subsequently uh, moved to the United to, to the United States. He was a rabbi in Moylev, and then he later moved to America. Um, so so he was very lonely in this men's suburb, and and he got in touch with Rebruvain, and Rebruvain, as a young bacher, would learn as a chavrusa together with this Reb Simcha uh, Interestingly enough, a, the two are buried not far from each other in the Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens. Reb Simcha Salavechik, Reb Ruvain's not far away, Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky's in the neighborhood there also. So they, all these original Minskers uh, came back together in, in Mount Judah. Um, when he was, so Reb Ruvain goes to Slabatka, and he, he's the one who encourages many others to, to come to Slabatka. He brings Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky to Slabatka, he's the one who brings Reb Aaron Cutler to Slabatka, when he was in Slabatka, he was the one who received the Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman and studied with him when he first arrived in Slabatka. He was responsible for literally saving a lot of these uh, youth and bringing them to study by the altar uh, of Slabatka. Eventually, um, later, he was in his 30s, he marries the daughter of Rabarach Ber, who's the Rosh Hashiva of the other Slabatka Yeshiva, and he was already in his 33, 34, he was older, after World War One, is the end of World War One when they were in Kremenchuk in, in Ukraine. And interesting that several days before his wedding, his father passed away. And the altar Slabatka decided not to tell him about it. He said, Reb Ruvain's uh, Kaddish is his Torah study. And he says Kaddish 24 hours a day. So I don't need to tell him about his father passing away. It would disturb his his Torah learning. And he's what he's doing is the best Kaddish that he could possibly do for his father's honor and his father's memory. And, um, and so he, um, and not only that, he was so close with the altar and such a prominent uh, Slabatka Talmud Rebruvain, he was sent as part of the core group of Slabatka uh, students who were sent to the Mir in the early 1900s to strengthen the yeshiva and to strengthen the study of Musar there. And he was the head of that group with Rebzalma Dolinsky and, and a few other great uh, Slabatka Talmidim at the time. Now, while he was still in Minsk, even before he went to the altar, he had a confrontation with Eliezer Kaplan, who was also a Minsk native, and he became famous later on because he was the first finance minister of the state of Israel. So now Eliezer Kaplan is not yet the finance minister of the state of Israel. It's the late 1800s, early 1900s probably. And, um, and he was organizing Zionist youth clubs. At the same time, Reb Ruvain was trying to combat all these movements. He was trying to organize Torah study clubs for the youth. 
And Kaplan, in a confrontation with him, allegedly, so the story goes, he slapped through Ruvain. Ruvain is actually several years older than him. And so you're talking about it at a time where where emotions were high, ideology was high, and this is what Ruvain was going up against. Minsk was a very revolutionary and not very, not a very religious city at the time. And um, while in Slabatka, Ruvain attended, he was by the altar. He was in the Muster Yeshiva of Slabatka. And even though he was there, he had went to the other Yeshiva also. He attended all of the Shiurim of Rabarach Ber, which you know, it wasn't uncommon. There were those who did it, but Rubin never missed a shear. He would go to all of Rebarach Ber's shiurim that he gave, you know, over the course of the week. And when Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rabbi Aaron Cutler, when he was trying to convince them to leave Minsk and to come to study in Slabatka, one of the incentives was, he says, you can benefit from both yeshivas at once. There are two yeshivas and you can get the best of both worlds. You can be by the altar and you can go to the shiurim of Rebarach Ber. Um, but he would not switch to the other yeshiva, even though he loved Reb Baruch Bashirman, who was his future father-in-law, but he wouldn't switch. Why? Because Reb Ruvain said he couldn't leave the altar of Slavatka. He was very close with the altar and his way, and um, and he wouldn't want to leave it. Now, Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky, he stated that uh, Reb Ruvain saved him and Reb Aaron Cutler from the Haskalah influences by sending them to Slavatka. And presumably, Saving them from Haskalah influences mean, you know, from revolutionary activity, perhaps even secularization. So Rebruvain was literally the one who, who saved it. And, and besides for all the other things that Rebruvain has credit for, for the Kamenetz Yeshiva and for the great Torah leader that he was, but it's to his credit that we have people like Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetzky and Rebaran Cutler. So for that alone, uh, that's, uh, that's, that already makes uh, Rebruvain, uh, you know, history worthy. Um, he was also in, had the unique uh, honor, I guess, I don't know what we would call it, the unique position uh, to, that he was asked by the altar to be the one to censor a Baron Cutler's incoming mail when he was in Slabatka and to make sure that none of the negative influences from his family, that mail, those letters don't get to him. Now, uh, while Ruvain was in Slabatka, he would stand stooped over. That's the way he walked. He walked a bit hunched over. And the altar wanted him, the altar Slabatka, of Nassim Finkel, he wanted him to improve his posture. He said he has to stand straight, he has to stand tall and proud. This, you know, part of the, the outward manifestation and expression of the Slabatka philosophy of the greatness of man, the godless Adam. So what, he, what the altar's, uh, the approach was that he had Rebruvain wear a pince-nez, a, a style of glasses at that time. It didn't have a, the, those two little frames that go behind your ears, but it just, was stuck on the nose, pince-nez, which means pinched nose, right? It pinched the nose, and if you lean too far down, then it would simply fall off and shatter. So the only way to make sure that it wouldn't fall is to stand straight. So you were forced to stand straight if you're wearing this pince-nez glasses, so it wouldn't fall off. And that actually trained Rebruvain to stand tall and straight. That was the altar's training. Interestingly enough, a similar story is told about Rabbi Isaac Sher from his future father-in-law, the altar of Slabatka. And that's how Rabbi Isaac Sher came to walk straight. And in fact, when Rabbi Isaac Sher arrived in, in Eretz Yisrael at the beginning of World War II, so he would go on walks in Yerushalayim with a young student in Hebron Yeshiva named Baruch Mordechai Ezrachi, who's today Rabbi Baruch Mordechai Ezrachi, a very prominent Rosh Yeshiva, may he live and be well. And he would 
work on the young Baruch Mordechai's Rachi's posture. He would tell him that this is what the altar trained him, and he wants to train, he wants to give over that tradition of how a Slabatka student is supposed to walk. He wants to give that over to Baruch Mordechai's Rachi. So that's, that's, that's uh, the Slabatka way of walking. Now, when Rebruvain was, uh, he had married into, you know, married Baruch Ber's daughter, he was now part of the Kamenetz Yeshiva. He was basically in charge of the yeshiva. He lived very simply, very, very simply. He lived together with the Rabbah Bar in his apartment, essentially. He didn't have, even have his own home. Um, very sparse. He didn't want to take any extra money from the yeshiva. The yeshiva was, of course, in very dire financial straits the whole time. And he ran the finances. Rabbah Bar was, uh, was, was above everything. And the one who ran the day-to-day yeshiva, both in the base medrash and speaking to the students in, in, in learning and also in running the administrative end of the yeshiva and fundraising for the yeshiva and, and taking care of everything, it was really Rebruvain, the one who ran Kamenitz, the one who was running Kamenitz day to day was Rebruvain Grzovsky. So he was really, you know, Rebaruch Ber was the one above, he was also older, um, and Rebaruch was mostly at home, um, but the one who was in the yeshiva and ran it day to day was Rebruvain. Um, and and he did it all by taking backstage. He was very quiet about it. He was very modest about it. And of course, his father-in-law was the the uh, image and the uh, the the what Kamenitz was with Ruvain in the background. Now, when Ruvain al- arrives in the United States at the beginning of the war, um, somewhat at the beginning of the war, he was in Vilna with the yeshiva, and the, he was still in Europe and. As late as February, perhaps even March of 1941, he only arrives in Seattle, on the West Coast, um, in May 1941. Talking about literally only a couple of months before the German invasion of the Soviet Union, which took place on June 22nd. So he got out literally, you know, very close to the end when it was almost, uh, you know, last chance of getting out, and he tried to assist as many communist students as possible to be able to get out. Also. And then he immediately throws himself into the activities of the Vat Hatzalah, rescue activities. And he sends packages to students of his who were stuck in Siberia during the war. And, um, and then in the meantime, during, during that time, he also established a Kamenitz Kail on the Lower East Side, Manhattan. But very soon he's hired to become a Rosh Yeshiva in Yeshiva Tayyar And later it's Tayyar Vadas's post-high school Yeshiva, which was opened in Muncie. In, uh, in Be- called Beis Medrash Elyon, and for, during the 1940s and 50s, he had those positions, and he would come up to Muncie to Beis Medrash Elyon on Thursday, and he would deliver a shir on Friday and on Sunday in, in Beis Medrash Elyon, and he would stay up the entire night Thursday night preparing the Friday shir, and then he would stay up the entire night Friday night preparing the Sunday shir. He took the shir preparation very seriously, and then he would give the same exact shir at a lower level uh, in Tervadas, back in Tervadas, where younger students, so it was at a different level on Tuesday. And he would prepare for many, many hours about what would be the appropriate level. Again, it was the same exact shir, but he would still uh, invest much time because he wanted it to be you know, catered exactly to what the students would need. He would, um, he, would, he would think, what's the ideal way to present it to the Talmudim and how they'll be able to understand it as a as a true educator. Now, um, he, he, uh, his, his, he had a, 
it was put, put together after he passed away. I mentioned it in one of their Baruch Bar episodes, his book called Bayois Hazman, The Challenges of the Time, which summarized a lot of his views on current events, on Zionism, on the state of Israel, and, and different challenges of modernity and education. And uh, he, was, he had very strong views and very, very strong and able and very capable leadership. When he was in the United States, he took a leadership position, not only in where he was the Rosh Hashiva and Beis Medrash Aliyah and Taravadas, but also in the Agudas Yisrael and Tyra Masaira, and very involved in the activities of the Agudas Yisrael in Israel, and um, and very involved in all other types of activities. And that eventually led, most probably, to his passing. He, he passed away under very tragic circumstances. Um, he was involved in a car accident in 1952. wasn't all that old. He was in his 60s. And um, there was a a uh, a car, the, a driver that jumped the curb and hit Herb Ruvain as he was walking on the sidewalk. It seemed to be a deliberate hit. Um, and, and what seems to be, again, this is not something that's been verified or known today. The FBI never really made a full investigation of the issue. But it seemed to be that it was the mob. It was, and it was like what, what, uh, what, what, what we're familiar with from other early American rabbis. And when Rebruvain insisted on trying to bring order to Kashrus, to the Shaykhtim, to corrupt butchers and who were not happy about him trying to, uh, bring order to it and organize it and, and upgrade the Kashrus because that means that someone examining their, their business a little too, with a little too much scrutiny and he got in trouble with the, with the mob because he got either the butchers or the shaykhtim or both unhappy and he never quite recovered. He had a stroke, he had a heart attack, and uh, for the next several years he wasn't able to speak really. And even though he was cognitively completely there, but it was, it was not well. And he passed away in 1958 after this tragic episode and something that they were never able to really, you know, different uh, theories about what happened, but it was, he was trying to crack down on different corrupt kosher practices and the mob wasn't happy that he was either the mob wasn't happy or the mob was hired to not be happy about it um but they even the even though the claims have never been substantiated but that's what it seems to be now um again some anecdotes about Ruvain's life from over his life just to give you a little bit of a, a feeling of what Ruvain Grzovsky was um he, when he was the Rosh Hashiva in Kamenetz, he would be in the base Medrash every day, talking to the Talmidim, talking to the students in the Yeshiva, keeping his eyes on every on everyone. The students would approach him. He was very approachable. He, in fact, he was he used to reward um, a student in the Yeshiva who would tell him a good a good piece of Torah, a good shtickle Torah. He would give them ten zloty. And if you would finish an entire Masechta in Kamenitz Yeshiva, he would give as a prize a hundred zloty, which, which is a significant amount of money. To give you an idea, a, someone working in a manual labor in a factory in Poland in the 1920s and 30s, working a 10 to 12, perhaps even 13 hour day shift, probably pulled home 30 zlotys a month. Uh, someone working in in a in, in you know in uh, um, in textiles, which was considered easier work, might only make fifteen to twenty zlotys a month. Okay, talking about very difficult times. And here, for someone who finished a masechta in Kamenitz Yeshiva, when Kamenitz Yeshiva wasn't overflowing with money, but Rebruvain was 
not only because of his love of Torah, but because he was trying to educate about what's important to finish an entire Masechta, he would give them a hundred zloty. Um, so that's that's uh, that's that's how he would re- that's how he would reward the students at the yeshiva. Now he was, like I said, a close student of the altar of Slabatka, but he would only deliver a shmuz, a musar shmuz, once a year during El. Why? Because he was the Rosh Yeshiva. He was not the Mashkiach. And Naftali Leibovich was the Mashkiach, and Rebruvain did not want to encroach on his position, so he kept to himself, even though he had a lot to share in the realm of Musr as well. Now, um, he, he tried to cater his shear, like I said, to the level of each student. Now, one time he attended a shear by a different Rosh Yeshiva. And uh, the story does not, the, the, the source doesn't relate which Rosh Hashiva it was. And Ruven approached him afterwards and said, why did you quote this specific source during your shir? It didn't seem to really fit into the general discussion that you were trying to give over. So the Rosh Hashiva replied that he thought it was interesting. So Ruven said it was interesting, but it didn't explain anything. It didn't add, and if it doesn't add then it distracts your students and they're not going to get clarity. And you're trying to make things clear to your students. You're not just trying to add things that are interesting to impress people. The goal of your shir is to try to get it completely understood and complete clarity to anyone who's listening. Uh, he, there was a promising uh, student of his in Beis Medrash Elyon who was telling him over all kinds of brilliant, uh, he was going overboard with his brilliance. And Rubain said, I think that's a little too much. So the young man said, why is it too much? So Rubain said, I'll tell you as follows. There was once in Valazhin with my father-in-law, Baruch Ber, there was a genius in Valazhin who anticipated everything that Reb Chaim Brisker, their Rebbe, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, in, in Valazhin ever said. And Reb Baruch Ber said that nothing ever became of that Ultimately, this guy was the biggest genius in Velazhin, but nothing became of him. He was never a famous rabbi or scholar afterwards. And the reason that Rebarach Ber said that this other fellow was not uh, successful afterwards is because what you had to learn from Reb Chaim was also what not to say. And too much brilliance and too much overflowing is also not good. You have to know what yes to say and also what not to say. And... Um, that was something that he, he attempted to do as well. Now, when he was the Rosh Hashiva in Kamenitz, Ruvain would test every student when they would, upon their entry to the yeshiva, when they would, when they would come into the yeshiva, but Ruvain would continue testing them. He would continue testing them regularly. During the first two years in the yeshiva, every two months, he would test them on 40 new blot that they had to have covered. 40 pages of Gemara every two months, and they got tested on it. And the stipend that Reb Ruvain would dispense to each individual student for his spending needs would be dependent on how successful they were on that test. So this way, he kept a very good, close track of how everyone was doing in the yeshiva during that time. When he was the Rosh Yeshiva in Beis Medrash Elyon, so the mashgiach of the yeshiva in Beis Medrash Elyon was the son-in-law of Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, the mashgiach in the mirror. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Kaplan. At one time, Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Kaplan had to had to be away, so he asked Rebruvain if he could take him over and take responsibility of not only being the Rosh Hashiva for a short period of time, but also to substitute as the Mashgiach. So he said, sure, no problem. So he starts inspecting the dormitory. 
So he found a room in the dormitory that it was all disorganized. The bed wasn't made, there were clothes all over. And he said to the the boy who was the student who was in the this dorm room, he said, that's not, uh, that's not the way that you have to, you know, it's very disorderly, that's not the way we keep a dorm room, it has to be, you know, neat and in order, and, uh, and the, 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 the student of Rebruvain, he felt, he felt he had to justify it, so he started explaining, well, you have to understand, this is the exception, it's not usually like this, Rebruvain said that we have another tradition from Rebchaim Brisker, when you have a question, don't try to find an answer. Try to get rid of the question. That's always a prefer- preferred approach. And while he was in Kamenitz, what I found interesting about Rebruvain is that he did not limit himself to just the activities within the yeshiva. He got involved in the community, which was a novelty. Usually the yeshiva was separate from the community. But Rebruvain cared so much for the spreading of Tyra that he went ahead and established a boys' school in Kamenitz. He initiated a, 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 a base Yaakov and hired teachers from the Krakow Seminary of Sarashanir to be teachers in that base Yaakov and, and to have a base Yaakov for the girls, the local uh, girls in, in Kamenitz. And he even directed a Tiferes Bachurim, an organization for, that had Torah classes for working men. And, uh, and not only that, but he was a Kirov pioneer, believe it or not. He would tell, tell the yeshiva students of Kamenitz, again, a big novelty at that time, to go lead study groups for the local laymen in Kamenitz to take from their own time to give chumash shiurim and gemara classes to the local balabatim, to the local laymen in Kamenitz on Friday night to give from their own time to be able to share Torah with others. Now, when he was in the United States, he was the head of the Mayetzes Gedele HaTorah of Agudas Yisrael, and he and Rabaran Cutler together, they led the activities of the American Aguda. Now, when when Rubin became sick, Rabaran said, "I'm lost if I can't work. I can't work without Rubin. Uh, how am I going to be able to work without Rubin?" As the great Rabaran Cutler said. Now, um, it, it, one time, Rubin was set to address a mass meeting to protest some um, what was considered anti-religious activities of the early Israeli government in the 1950s, and some students at Torah Vedas asked the advice of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, should they take away time from their Torah studies to attend this rally and hear Rebruvain speak? Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said, you can miss one of Rebruvain's classes in Gemara, because someone can repeat it for you, or you'll hear another shir by someone else. But you'll never have another opportunity to hear Rebruvain deliver a shir on, on something that's relevant to Yiddishkeit, to our value system, and therefore you should grab the opportunity that you have. Now, one of the most amazing things about Rebruvin Gerzovsky, and uh, I, was, I was blown away with his, his involvement, the responsibility that he took as a leader. When he was involved in communal affairs, he, he used to, in the early 1950s, were very involved in, in Israel and what's going to happen with the religious community in Israel and the Agudas Yisrael in Israel. So, Anything in the newspapers that was about Israel or magazines, again, non-Jewish, popular newspapers or magazines, he had to get it and read it. On, on, at, sometimes late at night, students of Ismail Elian or other play, others would see him with his room, you know, full, covered with Israeli newspapers, Israeli dailies, 
and the evening news and magazines, and Reb Ruven Grzovsky would sit there, sit there examining it and reading it so he should be up to date on everything that's going on with the Jewish community in Israel. Another occasion, Life magazine featured a special study on the developing state of Israel, and Reuven had a student translate the entire article for him in Yiddish. Again, it's, I mean, it blew my mind that, that as a leader, he felt that he should delve into every media coverage that he can make a responsible decision and, 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 and know completely what's going on from the sources and you know, be, be involved so he can make a wise decision for his community and be able to uh, take responsibility for that decision. He even, he even uh, he knew, he understood public opinions. He even had members of the Tzairi Agudis Yisrael, the young Agudis Yisrael in America, organize letter-writing campaigns to newspapers and magazines if there was ever any Jewish issue that was uh, misrepresented. He also had a leading capacity at Tairu Masaira, the day school movement, and he once went to Providence, Rhode Island to speak at the, about the, uh, at the establishment of a Tairu Masaira day school kindergarten. Okay, Ruben Gazevsky, the great communist Rosh Hashiva. And he spoke, he said, why does the Rosh Hashiva have, the, have to be here at the establishment of a kindergarten? He says, do you think I have anything else better to do? He said, let me explain to you something. That if we don't have the future of Torah study, then there will be no future for, this, for the children of this community. They're never going to know what Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were. So this is the priority on my agenda to be here to make sure that a Torah Messiah kindergarten gets opened. He said, when did Moshe Rabbeinu's light radiate from his face? When God spoke to him? He said, no, light did not radiate from Moshe Rabbeinu's face when God spoke to him. Light started to radiate from Moshe Rabbeinu when he started to teach Torah to the Jewish people. And that's, and that's the job here, and that starts with kindergarten. So I think that's a great way to end uh, uh, the stories about Rebruvin Grzovsky. And um, of course, just a little bit, you know, hard to cover such a, an individual and a storied life and career in one little episode, but just a, um, a little bit of a taste. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com for questions, common sources, sponsorships, uh, virtual tours, tours, uh, lectures, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.